The Critically Human channel explores the human experience around the world and throughout time, with topics that range from the search for beauty to the quest for power, featuring concerts, interviews, lectures, and cutting-edge research projects. Visit uctv.tv slash criticallyhuman. So you'll see that I've chosen a particular PowerPoint slide here, and it's kind of like an art gallery. Uh, so I framed the title, and I'm going to walk you through this gallery. Like most gallery tours, well, I suppose some people look at everything, but probably most of us don't. And actually, I don't know about you, but I haven't actually gone much of anywhere this past year. So um, this is as far as I'm going to get. Um, surprisingly, in this tour of old age, we start with this guy, um, whom some of you may recognize. This is Joseph Stalin, the dictator. Um, and uh, that's uh, an interesting thing because uh, you wouldn't normally think of him either in terms of humanities or in terms of health and medicine. But he had a quote that is really apt when we talk about these subjects. He said, the death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. And it's interesting because in health and medicine, we talk a lot about statistics. And sometimes lost in that is the human experience. And that's actually what matters most to patients and to the larger group, which is all of us, because we're all patients, to human beings. Statistics matter, but they matter less than the humanity. Um, so Stalin took advantage of that in one way, and we're going to take advantage of it in another. Okay, so let's get started. We're gonna move down the hallway and the first gallery that we come to is actually the evidence room. So these are some of the top science and medical journals. So it turns out for the last year for which they have statistics, which was 2016, about you know four or five years ago, there were over a million and 20,000 uh, medical journal articles cited. And that's about two new articles a minute. So it's impossible to keep up with this. Um, but the other thing is science is really about diseases. Um, and literature complements it nicely because literature is more about Ill illness. It's the particular experience of disease, the individual experience. So I like to think of these sorts of journals as addressing truth with a little t, so facts, and literature, capital L, addresses truth with a capital T, those universal truths um, that unite us, that make us human. So uh, <laughs> I think of these as real books. Um, and the, the beauty of books uh, for me, I think for many of us, is the access to other people's internal and external worlds. Um, and, and there is this analogy actually between really good literature as opposed to, you know, just like a page turner that, that doesn't really go into much depth um, and good science. Both require some originality, elegance and imagination and they add something new or meaningful to the world. Now I realize it's kind of maybe strange, silly, off-putting to, to be discussing books in the digital age. Um, and let me assure you that uh, I can spend incredible, ridiculous amounts of time on digital devices. But I think one of the things that books offer um, that digital things don't is the need for you to process and for your imagination to process everything. When you're watching a video, 
it's it's more passive. The music tells you what to feel. The images tell you how to imagine certain characters. Um, in a book, there's far less manipulation of what you're thinking and feeling and seeing. And it really requires us to grow in different ways, to pull from different parts of our brains. And you'll see how that's important um, here. So this is, you know, obviously just a drawing of something, but we can see these on on PET scans, positron um, uh, um, scans of the brain where different parts light up in different colors. And the, the colors here don't really matter. But what matters is that some pretty high level researchers at places like Stanford and Emory have done these functional MRIs and PET scans. And what they've shown is that when people are given information as facts, versus as literature or story. The literature or story um, way of communicating shows much more heightened connectivity between different brain centers, and that persists longer, which probably means that we learn better when we learn through story than we learn just fact, because fact goes to very few areas of our brain. The other thing they show, which is really fascinating, is the way in which literature can literally put you in someone else's shoes. So say you're reading a mystery and your main character is running because she's being chased. The part of your brain for your legs is going to light up too, um, almost as if you are running. So that's why sometimes when you're reading something and it's really good, you feel like you smelled it or you felt it or, or you had the fear yourself. It's really lighting up those parts of the brain. And that's something that facts do not do for us. Um, there are all these like scientific benefits of reading for your health. And this is as distinct from getting, again, the same information by video. So it improves people's concentration and productivity. So regular readers have better concentration and productivity. Now that sounds a little chicken and egg to me, but apparently they sorted it out. And these are things published in, in really important journals like science and uh, neurology. Um, people who read more have improved memory, pattern recognition, and analytic skills. This is actually uh, cited as one of the reasons that Silicon Valley tech firms like to hire people who were humanities majors um, because they, they just have these different skills um, independent of whatever you know topics they learned about. Um, it helps for relaxation and stress reduction um, better than things like music, tea, exercise, and way better than video games. That may not be a surprise. Um, people read more and better sleep. They have less depression. They have more empathy, so the ability to feel or to understand and share the feelings of other humans. Um, they have increased tolerance for uncertainty, which in our crazy world is a really important thing. They're less likely to develop dementia, and there's a chance that they live longer. And this is after correcting for all the things we know lead to different lives, such as where you live, how much money you have, how much education you get. Um, so there are a lot of real benefits to reading. But that's probably not why you're here. You're here to hear more about the literature. So I'm going to start now looking at some books on old age. Um, you can see here, there's a whole lot. Some are kind of funny, although as a person who takes care of old people, I can say a lot of people feel that old age is always 15 years older than they are. Um, there's one called Pimp My Walker. Um, an official book of old age haiku. So, so there are some joke books. There are some practical guides. There are some very sciencey books. Um, but I actually want to go back a little bit um, first to some real classics. 
Um, these are the sorts of things that once you become a doctor, you don't see much of. Um, but it's pretty amazing. So um, Cicero was writing in 44 BC. Um, and de senectut is Latin for on old age. Um, the interesting thing was he was 62 when he was writing this and even a couple millennia ago, that didn't make him truly old. So in the book, he, um, he writes as if he is Cato the elder, somebody who was already dead, but was 84 years old. Um, at the, the time he supposedly was, was telling us. And he makes all these comments. Now, some of them are frankly ageist. Like he says um, of the older man, he does not do those things that younger men do, but in truth, he does much greater and better things by talent, authority, and judgment. So he's like blatantly ageist against the young, which I feel like doesn't really help the cause of the old. But he had some other really good points. He says, since nature um, has fitly planned the other acts of life's drama, it's not likely that she has neglected the final act. Act. Um, and people these days, and maybe particularly um, in a pandemic year where we saw old lives disparaged and forgotten, you know, let's lock old people up and we can go on with our lives. Um, that, that is a good plan um, to really think about the different things we contribute at different life stages since the vast majority of us will become old. Um, but he makes a point that I think a lot of old people forget even today, all these thousands of years later. Old age will only be respected if it fights for itself, maintains its rights, avoids dependence on anyone, and asserts control over its own to its last breath. I think old people are often so busy in our society pretending not to be old because old is so disparaged um, that the power and the benefits of being old are lost um, to people of all ages, really. Um, Plato is the other writer here. And after this, believe me, I'm gonna move off the classics. Um, uh, so he, he um, opens with the, the elderly Cephalus um, telling Socrates that, um, that his contemporaries, meaning Cephalus's other, you know, the other old guys harp on the miseries old age brings. But in my opinion, they are putting the blame in the wrong place. For if old age were to blame, my experience would be the same as theirs. And so would that of all other old men. But in fact, I have met many whose feelings are quite different. And this really speaks to the vast variety of old age, which is really interesting because we talk about old age as if it's this new phenomenon in this century when there are so many old people. But here in the classics from over 2000 years ago, um, we see all kinds of things. We see that everyone in their world is white that they refer to. Um, everyone who matters is male. So some things have changed for the better since then. Um, but they acknowledge that 62 isn't quite old. It's kind of middle-aged even then. Um, and 84 is old, same today. Um, and, and they talk about people griping about their old age, even as we know there's such variety. So we think about old people in nursing homes, but do we think about the fact that our, you know, two presidential candidates in 2020 were both in their 70s, that the head of the House of Representatives is 80, um, that the, the lead infectious disease expert for the country during pandemic was 80. Um, there is such variety in old age, and somehow we know this and we don't know this. Um, so a few other um, older books, not quite classics, um, but still some older writers, and then we'll move to the modern era. So in Shakespeare and As You Like It, he talked about seven stages of aging. Um, and uh, 
it talked about in middle age, people develop wisdom, but also fair round belly. Um, and that doesn't even include our pandemic weight. Um, and then in older age, that turns into spectacles on nose. Some of us were precautious that way, I think. And a shrunk sh shank. Um, and finally, in the last scene of all that ends this strange eventual history, the old end up sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So this shows too that the very end of old age is probably what scares people. Um, it's not the 80 that goes running or the 80 that's running the government. Um, it's the 80 where lots of the parts aren't working. And we do a lot about keeping people alive longer in medicine. And we don't do a lot about thinking about what that actually means for people as they grow older. So Hemingway talked about the complexities of old age and the old man in the sea. He talks about his character, Santiago, um, who's Cuban. Uh, and, and he talks about the positives and the negatives. He's really independent and he needs help from the young boy. Um, he he's losing strength and yet he has these incredible skills as a fisherman. Um, he has bonds with his community, but after the death of his wife, he's so sad and lonely. Um, so it really talks about the mixed messages of old age and um, how all these things are true at once. And so I think reading is a really good way to understand old age, because as I said earlier, it helps us understand uncertainties. Um, he also talks about the wisdom of old age because he says he can make up for his lack of strength because of all the tricks he knows. Simone de Beauvoir um, in France uh, wrote this book on old age and she describes the situation. And this may be, you know, for those of you who are students where old age seems so like your parents seem old and old as your grandparents or great grandparents, like it's way far away. Um, but she talks about the othering of the old um, and says otherness is a fundamental category of human thought. Thus, it is that no group ever sets it up as the one without setting up the other over against itself. We all start young. And so I think that's one of the reasons that it's so easy to other old. Our identities are set in youth. Um, so the House of God, you may recognize as uh, the most read book on medicine um, in the last half century. It was published in the early 70s, and still most people who go into parts of medicine will read it. Um, you can tell from this particular cover that there was a sort of 70s sexist vibe going on there. Um, but he sort of sees, he goes in saying he loved old people. Um, in fact, he says before the house of God, which is the hospital in which this doctor, young doctor trained, before the house of God, I had loved old people. Now they were no longer old people. They were gomers. Gomer is an acronym for get out of my emergency room. And I did not, I could not love them anymore. So what he describes here, and this still happens today, is that people go in loving their grandparents and being interested in old age. And the medical system literally trains that out of them. It sends these messages that, no, you don't want to care for older people, which goes against the messages that many of us get from our culture um, and from, from really important values. And it says, no, it doesn't matter. But basically, people are transformed by the ways in which medicine dehumanizes older lives. And the only way you can deal with it is to, to other them. And that's Simone de Beauvoir. Far away so that you stop feeling. 
Um, this next book, Why Survive, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1975. Um, this was a doctor who started the National Institutes on Aging. He was a psychiatrist. And he wrote this book, uh, Why Survive, about old age in America. And he talked about old aging as the neglected stepchild um, of the human life cycle. He says, we're more comfortable with death than with aging. Um, and he also coined the word ageism as an analogy to racism or sexism. And he says, ageism allows the younger generations to see older people as different from themselves. Thus they, they suddenly cease to identify with their elders as human beings. And this is why reading is so important because you can see the humanity of a person who's different than you are, whether by virtue of age or anything else. And I will say, this is um, a group of writers that are mostly white. I'm hoping this will change, um, but I'm old enough to have been around where writers who weren't white were rare. Um, now they're much less rare, but most are younger. So um, I apologize for the, the lack of representation in this group. Uh, we also know that in America currently, most old people are white, and we know that that is going to change dramatically in the next 20 to 30 years. So I would say stay tuned on that score. Uh, this is from a writer called Emily Fox, Fox Gordon, who wrote about turning 65. So I'm going to sort of talk about all the different ages of legal old age. Um, she says she really began to feel her age in recent years. This is in this essay called At 65. Then she says, I hasten to add that though my muscles may be weakening and my joints stiffening, I'm not infirm. I'm as vigorous as I ever was and reasonably healthy. Mentally, I'm quite intact, though my memory, always bad, grows worse. People tell me I seem younger than my years. So, so it's this complexity, the, these contradictions of everything's working less well, and yet I'm vigorous. I'm just as good as I always was. You know, mentally, I'm intact, but my memory's getting worse. It's just a jumble of contradictions. Um, and that actually leads to some pretty interesting writing. Um, but the contradictions were her point um, that her body and life had changed um, and but that she thought of old age as something that had to do with frailty and infirmity and lack of vigor and she didn't feel any of those things um, at, you know but when most people, especially younger people, look at someone who's 65, they say that person is old. So how is it that we define old age as this thing that happens later on in the stages of old age and not as a whole life, life phase? Um, so in, in my book, Elderhood, I talk about elderhood as a life phase similar to childhood and adulthood, one that takes place over many decades and has many substages. And that explains Emily Fox Gordon's confusion, because at 65, yeah, she can tell she's really different than she was even at 55. And still, she doesn't feel old in the sense of frail, because she isn't, because most people aren't until their 70s, 80s, 90s, or 100s. Um, this is Doris Grumbach, um, who wrote um, in, in the photo, she's 77 years old, so looking pretty good. Um, she, uh, she actually, there are a variety of photos here, but as you can see, she wrote a series of essays, um, one at 77, one at 90, and one at age 95. Um, so 
<laughs> she says the start of the eighth decade. So in other words, when you're in your seventies um, is marks the moment of being old because she says at 65, I must have been resigned to aging and death. I can remember no raging against the night, no anger about what Yates described as decrepit age that has been tied to me as a, as to a dog's tail, but 70, this is different. The month at 70 seems disastrous, so without redeeming moments. The funny thing is, when she turned 100, <laughs> so over 30 years later, she was still publishing, um, but different things. So in her one of her um, later essays, she wrote, I cannot take trips or read or hear very much, right? The parts wear out through most of human existence. Most of us lived only into our 40s or so. So I can't take trips or read or hear very much. So I find myself traveling around my head, uncovering small pieces of autobiography, like someone clearing out an addict. So she was still wandering around and finding stories, but she had to do it internally as she became so old that her eyes and ears were no longer reliable. This is Diana Athill, um, who was a very famous British editor and lady around town in her day. She lived to a hundred and two, maybe she died two years ago, I think. Um, she says, all through my 60s, I felt I was still within hailing distance of middle age, not safe on its shores, perhaps, but navigating its coastal waters. My 70th birthday failed to change this because I managed scarcely to notice it. But my 71st did change it. Being over 70 is being old. Suddenly, I was aground on that fact and saw that the time had come to size it up. By age 90, so she actually edited other people. And then when she moved into a care home like 20 years before her death, not knowing she was gonna live well into her hundreds, um, she began having some changes. So she says, um, dwindling energy is one of the most boring things about being old. You know, so, so we see older people needing a rest and we think, oh, you know, they're old. And, and yet what she talks about is she inside, she still feels just the same. So she says, it's one of the most boring things about being old from time to time you get a day when it seems to be restored and you can't help feeling that you are quote back to normal but it never lasts you just have to resign yourself to doing less or rather taking more breaks than you used to in whatever you are doing so frustrating no matter how old the person is um, these are a bunch of books by may sarton um, at 82, she describes that she has begun this journal at a time of difficult transitions because I'm now entering real old age, right? So now we've had old age at 65, at 70, at 71, now um, at 75. Um, at 75, uh, now at 82. So at 75, she says, I felt much more able than I do now. Forgetting where things are, forgetting so much makes me feel disoriented sometimes and also slows me up. How to deal with continual frustration about small things like trying to button my shirt and big things like how to try for a few more poems. That's my problem. So if you look here at these titles, um, I've arranged them in what seemed like a logical order at 70, end game, encore, right? Because then she doesn't die, right? So she's, you know, journal of her 79th year, encore, journal of the 80th year at 82 after the stroke and recovering. Um, but let me actually show you the real sequence. Recovering is first. That's actually about a love affair. Then at 70. Then after the stroke. Then 
then after the stroke, she gets better, right? So then there's Endgame. She's now 79, nine years later. Uh, then Encore, she's 80. Then at 82, she finally begins to feel old, years after decades after recovering and after the stroke. This is Donald Hall, um, a poet. Um, he says, in my 80s, the days have narrowed as they must. I live on one floor eating frozen dinners. His wife, who was much younger, died of cancer. And if you want to read some beautiful poems, she was the better poet, but they both wrote some stunning poets, um, poems about her illness and eventual death, which he wrote about, obviously not she. Um, I live on one floor eating frozen dinners. I get around, bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, new chair by the window, electric reclining or lifting chair for Chris Matthews and baseball. By spasming, I get around by spasming from one place to another, pushing a four-wheeled roller. I try not to break my neck. I write letters, I take naps, I write essays. And he did publish two books of essays in his later 80s. Um, but you can see the small existence and also what a difference it makes to be what we now call a solo ager. And I know in San Francisco, about a third of older people live alone. Um, some people, it's the better choice. And for many, it makes things harder and less good. This is Roger Angel, so a longtime New Yorker. Uh, writer who wrote an essay called This Old Man, which became a book, but the best part of the book is the essay, um, which you can find at The New Yorker online. You get a, a, a two or three, I think, free articles a month. He says, um, and this was years ago, he's still alive. Um, I'm 93 and I'm feeling great after a beat. Well, pretty great, unless I've forgotten to take a couple of Tylenols. Sense of humor. Um, I'm not dead and yet mindless and and not yet mindless in a reliable upstate facility. Decline and disaster impend, but my thoughts don't linger there. It shouldn't surprise me if at this time next week, I'm surrounded by family gathered on short notice to help decide after what's happened, what's to be done with me now. Disaster lurks. So on the one hand, it's irrelevant to his days. And on the other hand, he knows that at any moment, something is not just possible to happen as could be true for all of us, but relatively likely when you're in your 90s. Um, and then the, these were the Delaney sisters. <laughs> I just love the subtitle, the Delaney sisters' first 100 years. Um, so, so the first of the books about centenarians, there are more and more uh, centenarians. So the fastest growing segment of our population is over 80. Um, and the second fastest over 65. And the third fastest over 100. So that tells you a lot. Um, so Sadie says, you know, when you're this old, you don't know if you're going to wake up in the morning, but I don't worry about dying and neither does Bessie. We are at peace. She also says we've buried so many people we've loved and that's the hard part of living this long. Most everyone we know has turned to dust. I begin to see this in my patients in their 80s where clearly parents, um, siblings, friends, partners, spouses um, are dying. Uh, one of the reasons for young people to make older friends and for older people to make younger friends. So now let's move down the hallway and do something completely different. So this is Chimamanda Adichie, the Nigerian American writer who has one of the best talks ever called The Danger of the Single Story. Um, she talks about her roommate when she came to the US for college um, in Philadelphia. And she describes this uh, white Americans, uh, 
attitude. She says, her default position towards me as an African was a kind of patronizing, well-meaning pity. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. So Adichie actually grew up with uh, an educational administrator, mother, I think, and an engineer father. She was well off. She went to good schools. She went to college in America, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the roommate could only see her as on the ground, shoeless with flies in her eyes, could not see the actual human in front of her. And, and Adichie also says the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. Um, they make one story become the only story. So when we reduce people to one story, whether it's someone from Africa or someone who's old, we actually strip them of their humanity. Um, and I think that's one of the great things that, that reading or literature or a literary mind like Adichie's gives us um, is, is insight into the complexity. Uh, when we're doing scientific studies, we often have to uh, control away the complexity. So to be sure that we have the right result, but that actually kind of controls away people's humanity. Um, I think the best is a little bit of both, the science and the story. Um, this uh, from James Baldwin. So um, there were a lot of, you know, best of books um, and books last, uh, you know, in 2020 about, um, you know, what should people read? Um, I remember reading this one in the 70s um, and it's been on many people's lists this last year, but Baldwin, um, he grew up very poor in the Great Depression of the, the 1930s. He was harassed by police starting at age 10 um, and really treated harshly and rejected by his stepfather. Um, and so he makes the case for reading um, even when life is hard and heartbreaking. Um, he says, it was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all people who were alive who had ever been alive. So he was able to find his humanity and his sol solace in his books. And also having read, was able to work his way out of that life um, into a life where he spent years and years in France where there was less prejudice um, and into a life of being very influential in the United States. So next we're gonna move on to a portrait gallery. Um, this is Joan Didion, who is still alive um, in her late 80s, maybe now. Um, so she wrote a book after her husband's sudden death. Um, they, they had sat down to dinner and he had a massive heart attack and that was that. So completely unexpected. So you think, oh, people are old. Um, they expect to die. And one of the things about reading The Year of Magical Thinking um, it, is that you know, even when people are old, unless they have some, you know, slowly terminal illness, they don't necessarily expect to die. They know they will, but they don't expect to. And the heartbreak is no the less if you've been married to someone, you know, and, and loving them for many decades. So she says, life changes fast. Life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. The question of self-pity. Um, I also show you two pictures here. So Sometimes uh, it's hard to think forward from our young selves into our older selves or to see an old see an old person and imagine who they were young. But you can also see how she looks so the same. Um, this is Oliver Sacks, the great physician writer who died about five years ago now. And he had an article in the New York Times called The Joy of Old Age, no kidding, uh, on the occasion of his 80th birthday. He says, 
My father, who lived to be 94, often said that the 80s had been one of the most enjoyable decades of his life. He felt, as I begin to feel, not a shrinking, but an enlargement of mental life and perspective. Uh, one has had a long experience of life, not only one's own life, but others too. Now, the interesting thing about this quote is that some of it really speaks to his privilege as an educated person, as a person who had opportunities for education and achievement, and who had a very active life of the mind. But it's that last sentence I like, one has had a long experience of life, not only one's own life, but others too. That is one of the things that all old people, regardless of background, share. Um, and it leads to uh, an adaptability a resilience and a knowledge base. So we know that the vocabularies of old people are larger, um, that their ability to make good judgments in situations is on average significantly better. Um, we hear about the declines of old age. So, oh, where'd I put my keys? And what was the name of that restaurant we ate at the other day? Which is true, but we don't often hear the positives. Um, and that one really speaks to it and not just for the very fortunate like Dr. Sachs. Um, I sort of like this, like writing naked in your 80s. It's, I don't know, I just love it. Um, so this is Roger Angel on the left again, and um, Donald Hall. And I also just want to point out that um, Roger Angel, um, in these photographs, Roger Angel is much older. Um, Donald Hall lived a, a secluded life. <laughs> um, but they, they both made comments about how they were treated as older men. Um, Angel talks about going out to dinner in Manhattan with some younger friends, so people in their, I think, 60s and 70s or 70s, something like that. He says this, there's a pause, and I chime in with a couple of sentences. The others look at me politely, then resume the talk exactly at the point where they've just left it. What? Hello? Didn't I just say something? Have I left the room? Parentheses, he writes. Women I know said that this began to happen to them when they passed 50. Close parentheses. When I mention the phenomenon to anyone around my age, I get back nods and smiles. Yes, we're invisible, honored, respected, even loved, but not quite worth listening to anymore. Meanwhile, he's writing for The New Yorker. So I don't know what those people were on. Um, Donald Hall said, uh, describes a couple situations. A grandchild's college roommate encountered for the very first time pulls a chair to sit with her back directly in front of me, cutting me off from the family circle. I don't exist. Note that this was his family, not the visiting friends. Um, then he says, old people are a separate form of life. They have green skin with two heads that sprout antennae. They can be pleasant. They can be annoying. In the supermarket, these old ladies won't get out of my way. So he finds them annoying too. But most important, they are permanently other. When we turn 80, we understand that we are extraterrestrial. If we forget for a moment that we are old, we are reminded when we try to stand up or when we encounter someone young who appears to observe green skin, extra heads, and protuberances. People's response to our separateness can be callous, can be good-hearted, and is always condescending. So informative. The other's lived experience. And this is Diana Abhill again, and I just wanted to show you her as the young ingenue. She was really apparently quite something around London. Um, so when you see someone old, um, don't imagine that they weren't um, sort of the it woman a while back. 
All right, I'm getting close to the end here. Um, I like to show this side. Um, so I often ask medical students, what do you see? And they'll talk about the medications and the guy in bed and he's not fully, he hasn't fully sat up, but at least he's eaten, he seems to have eaten well. And then I tell them that this is Isaac Bishevish Singer, so the Nobel uh, Award Laureate for Literature at age 70. So he lived another 20 years. During that time, he wrote 10 novels, five books of nonfiction, five short story collections, seven children's books, and won the Nobel Prize. Um, now, most of us won't do that in a whole lifetime, um, but the point is when you see old, all you're seeing is the body. You have no idea about that human being. Um, and I was reminded of that in a passage from a book by this woman. This is Vivian Gornick. Um, and in a letter from Greenwich Village, um, or, uh, which is a, an essay pulled out of the book called Odd Woman in the City. Um, she talks about a short stretch of newly poured concrete on an icy winter's morning in New York City. Um, workmen had left a wood plank and flimsy rail for pedestrians. She was about to cross when she saw what she called a tall, painfully thin and fearfully old man. Wordlessly, she held out a hand for him. Wordlessly, he took it and came across. Face to face on the icy New York street, the fearfully old man was the first to speak. This is how Gornick describes the entirety of their conversation. Thank you, he says. Thank you very much. A thrill runs through me. You're welcome, I say in a tone that I hope is as plain as his. We each then go our separate ways, but I feel that thank you running through my veins all the rest of the day. So I'm thinking like, what's so, you know, what's the deal? Like at some point in her life, she was helping this, you know, frightfully old guy across the street. You know, what was he sexy? Was he, you know, what, what was it? Was it surprising in his thank you? This is how she describes what happened. It was his voice that had done it. That voice, strong, vibrant, self-possessed, did not know it belonged to an old man. There was in it not a hint of that beseeching tone one hears so often in the voice of an old person. When small courtesies are shown, as though the person is apologizing for the room he or she is taking up in the world. Because of our ageism, we ask people to apologize. And here was a guy that didn't. And here was a woman who noticed. And she noticed because although she's the helper in this situation, she's actually, um, in by my calculation, in her later 70s when this happens. But she's functional because the range is, is so wide. She's highly functional. So she sees him as old, but not herself. Um, I'll just show you another panel of uh, some books that you might be interested in on old age. There's nonfiction, uh, fiction, um, and uh, even a, uh, a two graphic novels in the center there. Can't we talk about something more pleasant by Ross Chast is terrific. Uh, 